1: Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here with me this Monday morning is my fellow, alliteratively named, news obsessive, your beloved bunker favourite and, don't tell anyone else, but one of my bunker favourites, Alex Andreu. (laughs) Alex, how are you this morning, mate?
2: I'm alright, Jacob. It's it's getting harder now that it's pitch black when we get up to do this. It's really cold.
1: I'm in multiple (laughs) layers right now. Yes, yep, yep. (laughs) Big news that's going to come this week domestically i mean on the talk of being cold energy bills is uh, clearly going to be a focus the autumn statement is coming on thursday on sunday jeremy hunt spread the the cheery news that we're all going to be pay, paying a bit more tax i'm afraid uh, where do you expect these taxes to fall and why is it not just all on energy companies profits Okay, so, I mean, the first thing to say is that it couldn't all be on energy profits
2: because we're not just trying to cover what we're spending on energy bills, which was the case, mm. let's say, six months ago. We're now trying to cover a much bigger hole created by the Trasquarting mm. fiasco a couple of months ago. And so the hole, as it were, in the budget is much bigger So, and that I think is the message the opposition have to keep pushing Mm. that you know the the pain that's about to come is not just because of factors external to the government. The bulk of the pain that's about to come is to to pay for the cock up of Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss, and so the Financial Times has a, a scoop today, Monday. Chris Giles, a friend of the podcast, and Sebastian Payne, they looked at the forecasts behind the plan and and they expect that the Office of Budget Responsibility will estimate that government borrowing will be about 70 billion more than expected. So it will be about close to 100 billion when it was expected to be 32 billion, I think this year. That was the original estimate. And that tallies with this notion that you know the, the trust and Fiasco created about 60 billion more of a problem than there was before, simply because it's now more expensive for us to borrow. We're paying more repayments on the money that we have already borrowed. And the the last thing which needs to be emphasized is that we also have to go much further as a country to show that we're risk averse because Mm. markets no longer trust us. So something I said on the podcast maybe a month ago, we've gone from an economy that was trusted
1: by default to an economy where the markets are going, show me. In terms of showing us, what else do you... uh... Yeah, you know, in terms of cuts, what are you what are you expecting to to see there? In terms of Hunt doing this whole serious adult act, he seems to be doing. Mm. What is he? Uh, what's he going to go for there? Okay, so
2: some of it, some of that will be expectation management. Okay, it's mm. not normal for a chancellor to go around using the word, the word eye watering, which he's been doing a lot over the last weekend, and so I think some of it will be expectation management because they will want both voters end markets to price in a worse budget than the one that will come Mm. okay so they want the expectation to be of something absolutely catastrophic so that when the budget actually comes they can say it wasn't as bad as everyone expected so look out for that narrative Mm the day of the budget so that's the first thing to say the, the second thing to say is that we are getting a strong sense from announcements announcements being trailed that the general lean will be towards cuts rather than tax increases mm. and so i've heard a 55 45 or 60 40 split between covering that black hole with cuts rather than mm. tax increases i think that is the wrong focus and the spread of cuts is also important. They keep saying, you know, the richer people will pay more, but they always pay more in absolute mm. terms because they're richer, <laughs> you know. So, of course, they pay more. The 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 point is that the richest households have the most fat. Mm. And so they're the people you can tax a lot more without impacting their life in a catastrophic way, while the poorest households... So if you say we're going to tax rich people 10% more and poorer households 5% more, that may have the appearance of fairness, but actually the richest households can can afford to lose 10% of their income without even blinking, while someone on universal credit would be facing catastrophe if they faced 5% more in tax at the same time as facing 15% more at the supermarket and 140% more on their energy bills. Do you Mm. see what I mean? Yeah. Because they don't have the room to negotiate that kind of cut.
1: I mean, this is following a bit of a a phase... uh... A pattern. Let's say, really, I know Hunt's obviously spoken to George Osborne for advice, who uh, wouldn't be my first person to <laughs> uh, to talk to, <laughs> to be honest. But you know, it's kind of it's clear that from that, this is you know, this is the the sequel and austerity 2.0. With these current Tories, though, it seems to me they're not even good at doing all the horrible stuff they want to do. You know, if you're going to be <laughs> awful, at least be competent at doing that. What's kind of strange about this, you know, new phase of austerity that we're seeing and how it's been deployed? I mean, choking demand state side, while
2: it's also dropping consumer side and business side, can basically turn a short recession into a much longer or much d- deeper one or both. Hmm. And so you have a situation where Kenyan economics generally dictates that when there is a, a lowering of demand on the uh, non-state side, it's better for the state to step in and create a bit of demand stateside so the economy doesn't basically collapse. And so that's why austerity in general doesn't work. Mm. But we're also seeing a sort of front-loading of measures. Even within the austerity envelope, the chancellor has a choice, okay? So even though I disagree with austerity, there are ways of doing austerity that are less painful. So you can make the curve of the cuts and the tax rises smoother and slightly longer and still give a signal to the market that you're aiming for you know fiscal balance, as it were, but mm. just over a slightly longer term. so it's effectively the difference between me deciding that if I owe a hundred quid, I'm going to pay ten quid back a month for the next ten months, or deciding that I'm going to pay ninety quid this month and then one pound for the nine months following. And so that's what it looks like they're going to do it. And that's doing the wrong thing in the wrong way, because front-loading cuts will mean more pain for Mm. uh, people and businesses. And the only upside is that it will allow the chancellor next year to create a sort of faux mini-recovery and give people a few giveaways just ahead of an election. So it's punishing people, quite literally killing people. You know, the University of Glasgow did a, a, a piece of research and found that in the first decade of Tory austerity, we had three hundred and thirty-five thousand more excess deaths that were directly linked to austerity. Okay, so this is not some academic debate. Cuts kill people, and so to front-load. Cuts just so that next year you have a better chance of being elected by reversing some of them is the most deeply immoral, wicked thing that a government could do.
1: There's clearly not really very much, you know, fat to cut in Hmm. tons of services in this country at the moment. I mean, Hunt himself on Sunday said the NHS is on the brink of collapse. I mean, I would hate to be there when he gets his hands on the longest-serving health secretary in history (laughs) because that surely will be a tough conversation. I find it quite hard to sort of watch himself contort himself into these positions whilst also doing this sort of, I tell it how it is, act. Do you find it weird or just hard to watch him speaking on Sunday?
2: I mean, it's, it's always strange... It's not specific to Hunt, you know, I do, not for me to defend him, <laughs> but but it's always weird when someone comes to the Treasury from a different long-held brief because they move from a position of asking for money to a position of having to say no to money. So that's always strange. I think the more general point is that after the trust Quartang episode, there is a danger that the, the pendulum swings too far the other way. And fair enough, markets may react in a less bad way because they never react as badly to excess caution as to excess risk. But it's still the wrong thing to do to, to become too cautious. You know, we are in an economic situation that requires some calculated risks to be taken. The problem with the trust quarting budget is that it took too many risks that it took them all at the same time and that they were entirely uncalculated because they refused to publish the 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 uh, forecasts that showed their workings but to then move completely the other way and say, we're going to take a a really bad recession on the chin because we'd rather do that than take any risks. You know, it's something that carries its own problems.
1: we focused on Hunt a lot here, but how is Sunak going to fare when it comes to these moves? I mean, things like defence cuts, for example, are surely just going to tee him up for a fight with his own MPs.
2: Mm. I mean, there are various groups that will... Reject various cuts, if that makes sense. Mm. So, there are quite a lot of northern, so-called red wall MPs that want benefits to be operated more generously. There are various um, sort of fiscal hawks who want taxes not to go up. There are various people in in the sort of southern shires that would like to see middling taxes, as as it were, not go up. So there are various groups to play off each other, and, and the needle Sunak has to thread is to not make any such group big enough to cause him real trouble. So he needs to keep them in uh, tightly controlled bubbles so that he can say, well, look, you may be upset about tax is not falling but look at all your colleagues who are upset about the fact I didn't uprate benefits by inflation and so he can say I'm you know I'm getting competing demands from all you guys and I'm trying to balance them defense is a particular risk because it's something where a lot of backbenchers agree that we should be spending more in defence, especially given the situation in Ukraine. And so that's why it's always mentioned as a flashpoint. But I would imagine he will have done a deal with Wallace before Hunt stands up in the house. And so expect to see these things being slightly dragged out, as it were. So Wallace will get slightly less money this year, but for a promise of... Um, much more money in three years' time when we're predicted to to have paid down the deficit to a significant degree. And expect to see that with voters as well. So expect a lot of the statement that comes on Thursday to be jammed tomorrow. A lot of the statement will be, we're having to raise taxes now, but here's our plan for how we're going to drop taxes in 2025, amazingly, just the other side of an election. We're having to cut social care budgets now, but here's how we're going to boost it in 2026, amazingly, just the other side of the election.
1: And so that will be the general narrative. Sunak's at the uh, the G20 in Bali today. What are you looking out for from him there? Lots of
2: photo opportunities. I mean, <laughs> you know, he showed
1: <laughs> at COP27 that he's really
2: very good at those instagram moments i'm not saying that necessarily is a bad thing i think a prime minister in 2022 has to be good at that sort of thing but yes he's he's packing in by bi- bilateral meetings i think he's got one this evening he arrives at seven p m and then another nine tomorrow, so that 's meeting people on the sort of margins of what 's going on in the g20 i think he 's got meetings with Japan with Australia with Indonesia, and so they are less about substance because you know it will be impossible to really touch on substance and more about touching base you know about creating a relationship with all those leaders about getting a few nice photos in the press. And so he'll be doing that a lot, I think.
1: Yeah, I really want to see him in like a proper barley, eat, love, pray influencer (laughs) poses, like on one of those swings in the sea that they always have. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) if you see that. (laughs) (laughs) On to matters that are causing the Prime Minister problems, aside from everything else we've just spoke about, you know, Sowella Brotherman is... Still under pressure. She's travelling to France to sign a deal to try and stop people from crossing the channel in boats. You know, what does this entail and is this going to cause any sort of end to this saga that we've we've seen of late? I mean, apparently a deal has already been done. It was done with Macron
2: on the margins of COP27. And so I think number 10 are making it very, very clear that Braveman is merely going there to sign on the dotted line. And I think that's to limit the space and opportunity. She has to fuck it up. Remember, <laughs> you know, she she scuppered the the trade deal with India just with a, a few offhand comments during Tory conference. So she, she certainly has the potential to use the wrong rhetoric and really upset people, and take things backwards. So number 10 are trying to give her as little room as possible to do that. The main thing is that there will be an exchange of border staff, which was the thing that was being resisted before, quite rightly so, because I think the UK were being absolute dicks about this, to be honest. And so there will be UK border staff on the French side working with the French border staff to stop as it were, migrants from starting their journey across the channel because it's very difficult to stop them once they have started the journey. Braverman made a statement just before we recorded from France where she kept saying we have to stop migrants from disembarking in France. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminded me of Patel who kept uh, saying anti-terrorism when she meant terrorism. Um, <laughs> You will remember that Patel signed a deal with France last summer that was was much Ballyhooed, and that made little difference. So I think we can't expect that this will resolve anything, but the change of attitude, I think, is incredibly positive. The exchange of border stuff is incredibly positive, and the general tone of the relationship with France has improved markedly in the last couple of weeks. But this is like a balloon, you know? Ultimately, the thing that's feeding it is the waves of people who are escaping persecution, who are escaping um, poverty, who are escaping torture, who are escaping autocratic regimes. And so while that keeps coming towards Europe, it's, it's like a balloon. You squeeze it here and it bulges somewhere else. You have to remember that increased channel crossings are largely a consequence of success in stopping people from being smuggled in trucks. I mean, that's when channel crossings increased, when France and the UK got together and very successfully tackled the issue of people being smuggled in trucks. So people found a different way. And people for whom this is a business found a different way. And we must be prepared that they will find a different way yet again. And this is something that we have to keep doing. But in order to control what happens at either end, the solution is basically safe routes on one side so people don't have to cross in a clandestine way. And on the other end, we have to sort out the problems of processing. Remember, the the numbers of people seeking asylum are not significantly different than the recent past. Indeed, they're much lower than the early 2000s. The problem is the processing of claims. You know, we processed 4% of asylum claims from last year. That's just not enough. And that's what's really causing the problems.
1: Now, turning our attention to America, the results from last week's midterms are still coming in. The Senate has stayed with the Democrats. Alex, just how much of a boost is that for Joe Biden? Huge boost. I mean, it cannot be
2: overstated just how much damage Republicans did to themselves by trumpeting so widely in the weeks preceding the uh, midterms, how well they were going to do and what a red (laughs) wave this was going to be. And it turned out to be a complete damp squib. And so it's a huge boost to Biden. The, The problems with Biden rerunning were never entirely about popularity okay they they are to do with his age and they are to do with his presentational skills and they are to do with the fact that he's been associated with this economic downturn and so i think democrats would still be wise to look for a a replacement for the next presidential election but this is a huge boost to democrats i mean if you'd have told me two, three weeks ago that they would have sewn up the Senate with Georgia still to come, which they will likely win, so they, they're looking at improving their majority yeah. in the Senate, not needing those Kamala Harris casting votes, I would have bitten your hand off. And if you told me that, you know, Nearly a week after the midterms, the House of Representatives is still up for grabs. They're 212 to 203 at the moment. The uh, Republicans need 218 seats for a working majority, so they're only six away. But, you know, it, it's extraordinary because they expected to win that by 30, 40, 50, 60 seats. And so even if they take a majority in the House, it will be a really, really small one. you know. And I think they will ultimately take the House and Democrats will come to rue the fiasco in New York, which was basically trying to gerrymander the uh, district uh, borders, while at the same time former Governor Cuomo was packing the New York courts with conservative justices because it suited his political ends, even though he's a, he was a, a Democrat nominally. I mean, it was a big cock up in New York, and they lost four seats that they needn't have lost. And maybe that would have made the difference. But, you know, lessons learned for the future, I think.
1: So while Biden should be feeling quite happy, a former rival of his. Donald Trump is definitely not at the moment. He's due to make this big statement on Tuesday. Well, he's certainly called it big or huge or bigly, whatever he might have described it mm-hmm. as. Is it just obviously going to be a a 2024 pitch? Is that what you're expecting tomorrow?
2: Yes. I, I don't know why you say he's unhappy. He, ca- he tweeted on Truth Social, his own network, that he's very happy about the outcome, and it was a big success, and all those words were capitalised, and that he's definitely not angry. Of course Um, not. And angry was (laughs) capitalised. So, so I don't know what gives you the impression that he's angry and not happy. Sorry, Um, I'm not on Truth Social enough. That's clearly my problem. (laughs) I mean, the Republicans are desperate for him not to announce, for several reasons, because they think it will affect the runoff in Georgia. You know, it will galvanize Democratic vote against Herschel Walker, and they don't want that to happen just before the runoff. They also, plainly, quite a lot of them don't want Trump to run again. Ron DeSantis is seen as the the sort of future right-wing candidate. It would be a much healthier primary if you had effectively DeSantis running against someone that's slightly more centrist rather than having this bidding war between two very right-wing people because that just limits the options for the Republican Party but yeah you know Trump will do
1: as Trump does and whatever people around him think is neither here nor there. Finally looking to the the war in Ukraine the liberation of Kherson has given some optimism there and heaped another much-welcome batch of humiliation upon Vladimir Putin so on friday ukrainian troops entered the city for the first time since the invasion began how did you feel watching those scenes alex
2: oh it was elation wasn't it just uh, i mean there was just such a feeling of joy I saw people saying that, you know, even people who didn't like the police much before (laughs) have never been so relieved to see Ukrainian police in the streets. It really was wonderful and a great boost. And I'm sure it will give a morale boost to the whole of Ukraine. There are obviously residual problems. I mean, this was a withdrawal that effectively suited both sides because the Russians were clearly going to lose Herson, And they had a choice to either withdraw in a sort of measured, planned way, falling back to prearranged positions and taking all their equipment with them, or to be surrounded and then have to withdraw in a disorderly way. And so They have entrenched themselves basically across the river. There will be a lot of problems still because there are reports of a lot of Russians staying behind in Kherson in civilian deer. So there may be a lot of sabotage and and problems like that and attacks across the river. Effectively, uh, both sides are entrenching for the winter and they're both choosing the spot which is most defensible and it's a mark of Ukraine's progress that that dividing line has become the river Uh, because I mean they were nowhere near it uh, a, a couple of months ago and so they're all settling in there there will be a big focus on the economy in the G20 meeting that we mentioned earlier because i think the west needs to keep its consensus together about ukraine i think we are starting to see some dissenting voices some people who are saying well you know they've made good progress is this not the time to start negotiating now it may or may not be the point is the west is there to support ukraine's sovereignty and ukraine's sovereignty is basically the right to self-determine. And that includes determining what losses they're willing to take and when they're prepared to negotiate. So we should be allies
1: rather than try to be principles. Alex, thank you for getting up early to join me today. You're very welcome. That was Start Your Week, out every Monday morning from the bunker. We don't like waking up early. Well, I certainly don't. But we do love (laughs) making podcasts. And it's your support that helps us to do that. You can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll get episodes early, ad-free, access to exclusive merch and a shout-out. On that note, without further ado, take it away, Alex. A huge thank you from me to Chris Coulter, Tom Pine, Ruth Shafto, Catherine Rickson and Emma Freeman. Thank you, and we'll see you tomorrow for one of our regular daily shows. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreu. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasha Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor, Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.